The views expressed on this episode of My Take Radio do not reflect the views, thoughts, or feelings of the My Take Radio staff, My Take Radio advertisers, or My Take Radio content partners. Listener and viewer discretion is advised. This coverage is live and uncensored, so if you have any small children present, you may want to have them leave the room. What's going on, guys? My Take Radio, episode 214 for Thursday, February 6, 2014. Our call in number is 347-324-3541. Again, that call in number 347-324-3541. You can also hit up our feedback line, 347-815-0687, 347-815-0MTR. All right, so we got a, a lot going on this week um, for some reason. Our um our chat room isn't well. I don't know why the chat isn't working for me this week. Um, hopefully, I can get that squared away. Uh, either way, uh, we got a lot on tap for tonight. But I want to get some announcements out of the way first. Uh, we got some brand new staff additions to the My Take Radio show. Uh, Larry Mack from VGN is going to be joining us, and he's going to be adding his movie experience to our site. Of course. For those of you familiar with the VGN show, Video Game News Radio, you'll know Larry Mack from there, but he's going to be joining us as well, sharing some of his content. Also, um, a colleague of Quark and Blade will be joining us. Uh, his name is Julian. He's going to be doing some writing for us, and those both of them should be submitting content within the next day or so, so be on the lookout for that. We got a ton of stuff going up on the site this week, including some products that we got that we will be reviewing, and we'll be putting up video for that as well. You got to excuse me a little bit, dealing with some weird allergy kind of issues today. I'm going to try and not sniffle on the microphone because that's just obnoxious and terribly gross, so I'm not going to do that, but uh, don't mind me if I'm a little a little off this evening. Nonetheless, um, again, Julian and Larry Mack are joining us, and they will be adding content to the site uh, probably within the next few days for Larry, especially uh, for Julian within the next couple of weeks. Uh, also... As I mentioned last week about the whole forum situation, um, I responded to a couple of people that had asked about it, and if we get a dedicated following, like I said, uh, previous week's show, we will take it under advisement, especially with My Take Radio 5.0, which if we decide to do that, maybe we'll throw a forum in there. Nothing too crazy, maybe something a little bit more scaled back than the previous forum, and just give you guys a place to hang out if you want to shoot the shit and don't want to stay within the confines of Facebook. I mean, 
that's one of the things a lot of guys ask for the forums, but there's so many of you that are on Facebook that it gets me thinking why why give myself more more things to micromanage. You got to look at it from the standpoint that all of you guys are on Facebook in some capacity or another. Um, we've been getting a lot more stuff from Google Plus. Also, I know some of uh, some of the hardcore Facebook haters are moving to Google Plus or Twitter or Tumblr, and we've been getting a lot of great feedback from there. And with regards to that, you're going to see more content on all those other outlets as well to service our listeners that rely on that particular medium. Um, our Tumblr blog is mtrextras.tumblr.com. I'll make sure to put the link for that in the show notes if you guys want to check that out and follow us on Tumblr. Of course, at My Take Radio on Twitter and, of course, facebook.com forward slash My Take Radio for our Facebook fan page. So tonight's topics... Uh, we're going to talk about UFC 169. We're going to talk about Monday Night Raw. We got a ton of wrestling news, including some rumors with regards to potential uh, candidates for this year's Hall of Fame class. Uh, we got a decent amount of gaming news. We got a ton of casting news that we're going to get into, including, of course, the Lex Luthor casting for Batman and Superman. Uh, add to that the casting of The Vision, which was announced um, about an hour or two ago before we went live. And also, we're going to be talking about some of the other additions that have been announced for other Marvel uh, Marvel, uh, Marvel movies as well. Um, also, I did want to address a little bit uh, some of the stuff going on with, with the Lex Luthor casting, because a lot of people have been very torn as to how they want to approach that. Some people feel that it's terrible casting. Others feel that it's very forward-thinking, given the dynamic of how things have changed and Superman takes place in a more modern time frame, so we're going to discuss that a little bit. And, um, of course, we will take your calls. 347-324-3541 is the number. But before we get into that, I did want to get into this week's um, opening monologue. I did want to talk a little bit about the this past weekend Super Bowl. Uh, for those of you that are hardcore sports nuts, you know the deal. Um, that being that the Super Bowl is the end-all, be-all. Pretty much time stops when the Super Bowl is going down, and I say this because I I used to make it a tradition that I'd watch the Super Bowl with my mom. I'd go, I'd buy a whole bunch of food and a whole bunch of stuff, and, um, you know, we would we would sit down and, and have this whole big spread and watch the game, and she would always root against whatever team I was, you know, rooting against. She'd root for that team, and it was, you know, it was one of those things where it, it was bonding and and uh, it was it was fun, fun time. So the thing with me with sports and a lot of people, a lot of people are similar, but there are very few that I've run into. They um, they live and die by teams, whether it's hardcore Yankee fans, hardcore Met fans, hardcore Giant fans, hardcore uh, Jets fans. For me, I'm more a fan of individual players. I try to follow more players than anything else, uh, just because it's easier at, for me as a fan. If a player goes to another team, I can still remain loyal to that particular player. I mean, my all-time favorite athlete was and still is to this day Michael Jordan. I had Michael Jordan everything when I was a kid. I had Chicago Bulls basketball lamp, uh, bedroom set. Forget it. That was that was one of the things that I was really into. And now, you know, as I've gotten older, I continue to be a fan of individual athletes versus just following teams. Because what happens is um, I know a lot of guys and love them to death. They're my friends and all. But when it comes to team sports, they just become complete douchebags. They don't want to hear 
about their team being shitty or their team not being shitty. I just I just don't have it in me to to deal with that sort of thing. So for me, it's easier to just follow individual players. Now, in the case of this past weekend's uh, Super Bowl, it's a little different. You know, there's there's a lot of different things coming in. Of course, Seahawks came into the game uh, with their number one ranked defense, trying to make a statement. And of course, the legendary, pretty much guaranteed bona fide Hall of Famer in Peyton Manning going in there uh, post neck injury, trying to get the chip. A great feel good story. But what a lot of people don't realize is that when you're you're going in there, you are pretty much, um, you know, you're 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 going in either rooting for a team that may have eliminated your team just to make yourself feel good or you're just watching it for the commercials. Me personally, like I said, I wanted to watch it. Uh, the Seahawks came in with a great story. And of course, um, the, the you know, Peyton Manning was a, like I said, bona fide Hall of Famer. Anyway, the, the big thing that came out of that, besides people complaining about the Super Bowl performance, was a ton of great commercials. Now, if you've been to MyTakeRadio.com this week, you will see that we shared some of those commercials, including uh, Transformers, which I'm going to discuss later on in the movie segment, uh, Spider-Man, Captain America, Winter Soldier, Pompeii, etc., etc. But the thing that got me was a commercial for Coca-Cola. Now, you know, the the, the commercial for Coca-Cola, of course, had many, many different people singing. Um, I believe it was America the Beautiful, if I remember correctly. And they were singing it in different languages. If if it's not America the Beautiful, by all means, correct me. Like I said, I watched it in passing. And um, the thing that got me was that they were singing. They were singing this song in many different languages. And I said to myself, in in you know, I said to myself, people are going to get offended. It's 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 guaranteed. People are going to get bent out of shape because this is this is what we've become. Uh, no sooner did I say that that did I start seeing on Twitter. Um, thank you, Jay. It, you know, I started seeing people on Twitter. Oh, you know, uh, I'm not going to support Coca-Cola, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and it was just real, um, jingoistic, racially charged commentary. And it, and it disturbed me because this country was built on the, on the backs and the sweat and the blood of people from all over the world. So, for for people to take pride and 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 sing America the Beautiful, and and you know express themselves whether it was in their language or not, it, it was it was just a nice gesture. Don't get me wrong; it's still a commercial for soda, which is the the unhealthiest shit ever. So please make note of that. But either way, these people are there complaining and being super vocal, and and it bugged me out because it, it's like you want to ask these people, but were were are you a Native American? Did did somebody from another country come and take this land from you? Because otherwise, you don't belong here either. Simple as that. And and it just it it bog it you know it really just bummed me out because the worst part is when you see a lot of your your friends sharing this type of thinking. And I have a lot of friends I went to school with, a lot of old school guys, and and some of them were definitely very vocal. And you just gotta really uh, put a put a, a, a sensor on yourself because you don't want to uh, jeopardize your friendship or just go into a territory that's bound to lead to problems. That's that's one thing I try to avoid doing on Facebook and, and social media in general. Just 
uh, dipping your toes into the proverbial pool when it comes to religion, politics, um, sexual orientation. Whenever you get into those discussions on social media, it always leads to, to headaches and problems. So for me to see so many different people that I'm friends with just really complain. And the worst part is they're not from here. You know, their parents were, you know, Irish immigrants or, you know, Italian immigrants or, um, you know, Russian immigrants. Some, some, their parents came to this country and don't have a green card, but they're the first ones that get offended about that sort of thing. And it just, it really, it really irritated me. And I tried to just avoid social media for the last couple of days. I'm sure for those of you that were on the fan page or know me personally, you know that those those day, though that day, the Super Bowl day, and maybe the day after, things were a little quiet. I mean, there there was um, a lot of conversation about the Transformers trailer, but again, it was conversation about stuff that is not racially or or, or politically charged. It just, like I said, it bummed me out that so many people who probably their roots don't even trace back to anybody Native American are the first ones to be so vocal about what's going on and what advertisers put out there. I will say as a whole, most of the commercials weren't that great. And um, if you watch the Super Bowl for the commercials, you're you're pissing away three hours of your life because you could go on YouTube and watch that shit as well. But either way, um, the commercials left a lot to be desired. I will say this, though. Spider-Man, Captain America... And Transformers definitely went out of their way to really try and 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 promote the hell out of their product, and I commend them for it. I will say I felt Captain America had the better trailer, uh, more cohesive. You had a solid mix of 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 plot that you could give away and a good mix of action. Uh, the Spider-Man trailer it bummed me out because it kind of there were some th- some things that may be considered spoilerish in that trailer, depending on where they put those scenes in the movie. And again, if you're if you're a seasoned comic book fan, you you pretty much were able to pick every spoiler out of the trailer. And you said to yourself, oh, well, that's going to be kind of cool or this is going to be awesome or wow, that sucks. And I definitely did that. Uh, Transformers, like I said, it, it's uh, I'm going to get into it a little bit during our entertainment segment because the that trailer, there was a lot right but to a degree, some people felt there was a lot wrong and other people just, you know, they they consider the 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 Bay Formers to just not even exist in the same realm as the Transformers we all grew up with. And that's a separate discussion. But anyway, um, I just wanted to share my thoughts with you guys on on that, you know, that that Super Bowl shit, because it really was it, it was disheartening, especially, like I said, for for people that I knew personally. But either way. I figured I'd share my thoughts on that. Uh, It was a packed weekend of MMA. We got lots to discuss. So let's get that ball rolling. So, of course, this past weekend, it was uh, Hennon Burrow, Uriah Faber 2, that took place at the Prudential Center here in New Jersey. And um, it, it's funny because we had the Super Bowl in New Jersey and we had uh, the UFC do their event in New Jersey. But all the press, all the stuff, all the promotion was done here in New York City, which ruffled uh, a lot of people's feathers, especially those that are natives of Jersey. They were like, you know, 
It's it's not it's not the New York Super Bowl. It's you know the Super Bowl is being played in our backyard, and same thing with the UFC. But you you got to give credit where credit is due. The the events that were done here in New York City, not only for the Super Bowl, but also for UFC 169, were just some very awesome events. Um, Ray Longo School, which is now Ray Longo and Chris Weidman's Power MMA by my office, they had an awesome event uh, during the during the lead up to that. With a lot of great fighters were there, a lot of seminars, a lot of awesome stuff for people that were interested in getting into mixed martial arts or meeting Chris Weidman. Uh, Very cool stuff that was done there. And of course, if you're a New York resident, you know that during the week before the leading up to the Super Bowl, we had Super Bowl Boulevard, which was most of Times Square. And there was a giant toboggan and all kinds of craziness going on. But again, we had a lot of cool stuff, even though the events themselves were done in another state, especially if you're an MMA fan, I'm sure it ruffles your feathers that we can't even have an event in our own backyard, but that's a separate story. Anyway, let's get into some of the fights. Um, overall, I, I have to say that I came away uh, not disappointed, but I just felt that when I, when I watched this card that there was, it felt not rushed, but the fights came together in such a way that pretty much Almost all the fights, almost, almost all of them, ended in decisions. There were no submissions. And then finally, when we started getting into the main card, is that we started to see some, the the cards start coming to life. Otherwise, it really wasn't, it, it wasn't that great. I, I'm sorry. I mean, it wasn't. I, I got to give credit. Abel Trujillo and Jamie Varner got the ball rolling as, with, with a, with a, with a amazing war uh, Jamie Varner is is a warrior. This guy goes in there. He leaves it in the cage. He went in there and exchanged with Abel Trujillo, which is crazy because it was it was, Varner in the first round looked incredibly aggressive. Really, I thought he was going to try and take it in that first round, especially as it closed out with a wild exchange. But what ended up happening was they were fighting up against the fence. Varner dropped Trujillo, at which point Varner was trying to finish him off. They were going punch for punch. And Trujillo knocked out Jamie Varner with a right hook. It was a, a beautiful display, and it was a an, an epic, epic war. Definitely a great opener for the pay-per-view, especially coming off the prelims that were, like I said, less than stellar. Enjoyable, but not great. I definitely got to commend Varner for going in there and, and, and banging with Abel Trujillo. And for Trujillo weathering the storm and securing the knockout of 2 minutes and 32 seconds, in the second round. Now, one fight that went under the radar and started picking up some buzz earlier in the week leading up to the fight was Frank Mir and Alistair Overeem. Like I said, when we were doing the show last week, this was a fight that, depending on which way it went, somebody was going to end up on the unemployment line. I will say, uh, Alistair Overeem looked, looked good, but he did not look great. A lot of people automatically, oh, the Reem is back, blah, blah. He looked, he looked good. He fought safe, but he wasn't, he wasn't trying to go in there and, and, and kill anybody. Let's not kid ourselves. He was, he was really just playing it safe. You know, he had to, he respected Mir's hands. He knew not to really take it to the ground, but Overeem definitely earned his unanimous decision. He looked good in all three rounds, um, definitely working the smother, in the first round and you know the the, the second round kind of could have gone either way uh the third 
it was crazy because, you know, Frank Mir was trying to pull guard, trying to really get in there and work his Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Overeem wasn't having it. Uh, Overeem definitely working the sprawl to not engage on the ground. It was a decent, decent fight. Um, a little underwhelming, especially if, if you've been watching Alistair Overeem for as long as I have. You know that this guy usually goes in there and he kills people dead. Um, there's there's a, a bit of a blemish for Alistair Overeem with him calling out Brock Lesnar, and I'll get into that later on. But overall, it definitely was not uh, the greatest fight I've seen. I do got to commend Overeem for coming in shape and and being smart in the way he fought but it just it just wasn't exciting. As for Frank Mir, I think Frank Mir has a tremendous career ahead of him as he if he decides to become an analyst um, for the UFC or for any promotion. He's got a he's got a great mind for that. Um, he used to do some commentary, I believe, in WEC if I remember correctly, and he was very good there. So I if if Mir transitions to um, working in on you know on the announcing side of things, I wouldn't mind that, but. If, if Mir were to get released, I'm sure Bellator would scoop him up immediately. And I think it, with regards to that, it's not like Mir got knocked out. He just got caught by a unanimous decision. And honestly, Dana White kind of alluded to the fact that Overeem didn't really impress. So who knows? Maybe Frank Mir will stick around a little longer. Now, let's get into the two title fights we had. Jose Aldo, Ricardo Lamas, and Henan Burrell, Uriah Faber. Uh, Jose Aldo... Uh, just uh, a, a, an amazing, amazing athlete. This guy is, is he, when you watch him fight, you know that you're going to get an exciting fight. Ricardo Lamas looked really good as well, um, but it was not Ricardo Lamas's time as Jose Aldo retained via unanimous decision. Now, it's funny because talking to a couple of different people, they said, oh, you know, that fight kind of went either way. Jose Aldo might have lost. You know, the judges were on his side, et cetera, et cetera. It definitely was pretty close. Had it ended in a draw, I wouldn't have felt bad about it either. But overall, the, that fight was just enjoyable from a, from a technical standpoint. They went the full five rounds. Um, a lot of work by, by Lamas using a lot of different strikes to, to work against Aldo. But Aldo, those leg kicks, brutal, brutal leg kicks. And it was it was just what set the tone for the majority of their fight. Now, on the bantamweight side of things, Henan Burrell, Uriah Faber. Um, Uriah Faber took the fight on short notice. That's something to consider because people automatically are like, oh, you know, Uriah Faber is a fucking bum. And it's like he's really not the guy. You know, the guy took the fight on short notice. The guy's been a, a staple in the organization. He's marketable. He's personable. And, you know, he's he's young. So Henan Burrell and Faber, I thought, was going to go at least three out of the five rounds I was I was completely shocked when Henan Burrell secured the victory via TKO, three minutes, 42 seconds in the first round. Um, it was weird because the stoppage was definitely a little suspect. Some people were saying that uh, Herb Dean stopped the fight prematurely because Faber was kind of defending himself, was given a thumbs up, but... You know, it's it's a it's a very touch and go decision um, for Uriah Faber. Who knows? I mean, Ben Ben wrote a great column about it post fight. You guys can check that out on mytakeradio.com. I think Uriah Faber still has the opportunity to do good things for the sport. Um, at bantamweight, it's just these guys, Henan Burrell, Jose Aldo. They're they're just on a on another level. Not to say that guys like Uriah Faber or Ricardo Lamas or any guys in the bantamweight 
or featherweight divisions can't do that. But it's just that the guys that are champion right now are champion for good reason. Now, in Jose Aldo's case, he was kind of teasing that he wants to go up to 155 and fight um, Antonio, uh, um, you know, Anthony Pettis, which that's super fight potential, fight of the year. It, it has incredible, incredible uh, marketing potential for the UFC. And Dana White seems to be on board with it. I definitely would love to see that fight. I think that that's the fight that we've been we've been hungry for a super fight, and I think that we have an opportunity to actually get one with Aldo and Pettis. And as soon as we hear a date for that, I'll make sure to share that with you guys. Now, on the news side of things, there's a couple of things I wanted to discuss. Uh, first up, let's talk fight bonuses. Knockout of the night, of course, went to Abel Trujillo, $50,000. And fight of the night went to Varner and Trujillo as well. That was another $75,000. No submission bonus was given out because there were no submissions on the card. One fight that everybody's been talking about, and I knew what they were going to plan it either for 4th of July or Memorial Day, was Chris Weidman defending his middleweight title against Vitor Belfort. Well, mark this on your calendars. May 24th is when it goes down, and MGM Grand Garden Arena in Vegas. Of course, the specter of TRT is 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 looming large on this title fight, but Vitor is next to challenge for the belt. I think Weidman's going to try definitely to work his wrestling, take Vitor to the ground. I don't really think he's going to exchange with him, but you never know. I mean, the opportunity for an upset is definitely, definitely there. And to add fuel to the fire, we're also getting the finale of the Ultimate Fighter Brazil. Coaches Chael and Vanderlei Silva will co-main event that card. Again, Saturday, May 24th. It's going to be insane with Vitor and Weidman, and then co-maining Chael and Vanderlei. It's it's going to be insane. Uh, Chael has been talking a lot of shit, saying that Vanderlei is not ready, that he's fat, that he's going to try and back out of the fight, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, Chael being Chael, I will tell you this. If nothing, if nothing hurts or hinders that fight, that fight's going to be one for the ages because those two guys, like I said, the beef for that fight is definitely real. Another card that's that's 100% final for this month is UFC 170. Uh, of course, uh, Ronda Rousey's defending her belt against Sarah McMahon. Daniel Cormier will be debuting at 205 to take on Rashad Evans, Rory McDonald, and Damian Maya. Stephen Thompson, Robert Whitaker, and Rafael Dos Anjos and Rustam Kabilov will round out the main card that goes down February 22nd. And it will be on pay-per-view. The prelims will be on Fox Sports 1. Alexis Davis, Jessica I are on the prelims. And you'll be able to watch that. Like I said, Fox Sports 1. The other prelims will be on the UFC Fight Pass. Those will begin at 7. So you have the Fight Pass prelims at 7. Fox Sports 1 prelims at 8. And then the big pay-per-view at 10 p.m. So we all know Ronda Rousey coached the last season of the Ultimate Fighter alongside Misha Tate, and we know Juliana Pena was the winner of that season, and we discussed last week that she suffered a terrible injury. Uh, Tears to her ACL, MCL, LCL, meniscus, and hamstring. So she's going to be on the shelf. Check this out. Two years she's going to be on the shelf. Now, um, it's funny because Rick Little, uh, one one of the coaches, Uh, released a statement to MMA Junkie saying that it was a training accident and, you know, these are injuries that happen all the time. 
et cetera, et cetera. Of course, Dana White's super vocal about how this went. He was extremely pissed off, and he spoke very poorly of the training camp, said it was assault, you know, conflicting stories coming out of this out of this entire chain of events. But the 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 one thing we do know is that Juliana Pena's injuries will definitely keep her on the shelf at, at least a year and a half. Two years is the is the most. I, I mean, that's being generous, saying a year and a half. Hell, even even one year is being generous. But two years is what we can expect. It's unfortunate. Uh, first female winner of the Ultimate Fighter and can't even enjoy the fruits of her labor due to injury. So, like I said, she will be on the shelf for the foreseeable future. Another card that's kind of starting to take shape is UFC 152. I mean, excuse me, 172, which, of course, is John Jones defending his belt against Glover Teixeira. Also on that card, Jake Ellenberger, Tarek Safadine, and... Um, the returning Anthony Rumble Johnson will be meeting Phil Davis. Of course, Anthony Rumble Johnson has been on a tear since leaving the UFC, got his weight issues under control, coming in at 205. Phil Davis is welcoming him back to the organization. That fight is definitely going to be a barn burner. Either way you slice it, either because of Phil Davis's wrestling or because of Anthony Johnson's knockout power. Also on that card, Joe Benavides, Timothy Elliott, and uh, Beth Carrera and Jessamine Duke will also be fighting on that card. That will be going down April 26th at the Baltimore Arena in Baltimore, Maryland. On the free TV side of things, UFC Fight Night 38, that's March 30, uh, March 23rd. Of course, the big one, Dan Henderson, Shogun, once again, all the marbles. I, I feel that whoever loses is probably going to retire, and I think if Hendo does... You know, he's he's done so much for the sport. I'll take it, but I feel that this is going to be how it's going to end. Somebody's definitely going to walk away after this fight. Now, if it's, I, in Shogun's case, I think he's going to try and make another run at the belt, but I think in Hendo's case, if it ends in some sort of decisive, violent fashion, I think Hendo may hang it up. Just saying, just a feeling I have. Don't Don't quote me on it. I just just a feeling. We'll see how it pans out. Again, free TV UFC Fight Night 38. That's going to be going down March 23rd. Another fight that's starting to take shape. Pat Healy will be meeting Jorge Masvidal on the UFC Fox 11 card. That's April 19th. Um, definitely a lot of cards taking shape. Liz Carmouche, Misha Tater on that card. Edson Barbosa will be taking on the Don, Donald Cerrone, which is going to be a great card. Yo Romero and Brad Tavares will also be on that card. And, of course, the big one, Travis Brown, Fabricio for Doom. This is going to be a number one contender's fight. I think, honestly, Travis Brown is riding a huge wave of momentum, great knockout power, has the potential to really take the upset. But Fabricio for Doom, this is a guy that tapped out uh, Fedor. That's all I got to say. You know, there's a there's a guy that... It's it, people. People kind of don't talk about that when they're talking about Fabrizio over Doom, and it's like you fought what is considered one of the greatest fighters of all time, and you submitted him. It's something that it bothers me that the UFC uses this revisionist history because they don't want to acknowledge the accomplishments of Fedor. But the fact is that Fabrizio over Doom submitted one of the greatest mixed martial artists of our generation. Whether Zufa and the UFC tell you that or not, I'm telling you, watch Fedor's fights. The guy the guy was a legend. No no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Of course, some people are gonna are gonna 
dispute that by saying that he fought cans or he fought rigged fights, whatever the case is. The guy, the guy has so many great memories. He, he's added so many great memories to the sport that I feel that when you talk about greatest of all time, uh, Fedor is definitely head and shoulders above a lot of guys. One guy who I'm actually happy to see back and he will be returning on that Fox 11 card is Tiago Alves. Alves last fought Martin Campman and UFC on FX2 losing by submission. It's it it's been ages since he's been back. He's been dealing with injuries, um but he will be back for UFC on Fox 11. He will be meeting Seth Pazinski. Definitely glad to see the pitbull back. Um I'm sure he's going to continue working with Mike Dolce and uh, he's going to come in on weight ready to go. And I'm pumped. I'm definitely looking forward to seeing the return of Tiago Alves. Like I said, UFC on Fox 11, that will be April 19th. Last bit of MMA news to wrap things up. Ronda Rousey is expanding outside of the world of mixed martial arts. Uh, Variety reports that not only is she um, going to be appearing in Expendables 3, but she actually has a role in the brand new Entourage movie. She is also going to be working... Um, in a film based on the Brad Thor book, The Athena Project, which Warner Brothers is currently in final negotiations to acquire the rights for the book. Now, The Athena Project, while it doesn't have a writer, um, you know, Rousey's definitely going to get a fight in before that starts shooting. And basically what happens is this this film is about an all-female Delta Force counterterrorism team called The Athena Project, which is sent in to hunt and kill a terrorist after a bombing in Rome kills 20 Americans. Now, of course, we all know that going in, killing a terrorist, pretty paint-by-numbers action movie plot, which, of course, is not going to be as easy as it sounds on paper, so we know where that's going to go. Now, of course, uh, Ronda Rousey working in Expendables 3, which is in theaters this August, and, of course, she also appeared in Fast and Furious 7. I'm telling you right now, if the roles keep cropping up for Ronda Rousey, she is definitely going to use that to her advantage, whether to leverage more mainstream exposure from the UFC or to start preparing for a career outside of the octagon. But there you have it, the Athena Project, Ronda Rousey is going to be in that, and she will also be in the upcoming Entourage film. All right, so... That's actually all the MMA news for this week. Things have been a little quiet. Like I said, the, the this past weekend's card was was fairly yeah. I haven't been watching the Ultimate Fighter Nations, hence why I have not been recapping it. My apologies. I I, I think it's because there's a conflict because I'm taping like three things: Elementary, TNA Impact, and some of my wife's shows. So you know something's gonna fall through the fucking cracks. And in this case, unfortunately, it was the Ultimate Fighter Nations. In any event, that's going to wrap up our MMA segment for this week. We're going to get into some wrestling. Of course, if you want to contribute or be involved in any of the conversation, 347-324-3541. Again, 347-324-3541. Let's talk some wrestling. We want the gold, sucker! Hulk Hogan, we coming for you, nigga! Okay, so Monday Night Raw was how can I how can I say how can I explain it? Monday Night Raw had 
a lot of good points, but littered amongst them were a lot of little things that definitely, um, you know, they, they slowed things down, which, again, to the detriment of the program, but in terms of storyline, maybe it was better that things slowed down a bit so that you can kind of flesh out storylines. Because, of course, the departure of CM Punk, whether scripted or otherwise, has changed the entire scope of how the, the, the WrestleMania card is shaping up because, obviously, we have an instance where you're going to either... You're going to either get a Randy Orton title match with Batista, which we know is where we're going to go. We're, we're going to get a Daniel Bryan involvement either in that match or we're going to get Daniel Bryan stepping in for CM Punk and having a match with Triple H. I mean, the opening segment kind of alluded to a couple of different things, but to quote what Jay said, Monday Night Raw definitely missed Cena and Punk, and it was definitely apparent. Now, that's not to say that Cena and Punk can carry that entire show, but there's just things that you can notice are are out of whack when certain guys aren't there, and in Cena's case especially because this is a guy who, you know, he's your he is your face. So you kind of expect him to be on TV within the first half an hour, but that's a separate issue all its own. I played the intro music for our, for the very talented trio, The Shield, this week because they had a, a really, really good outing against Rey Mysterio, Kofi Kingston, and Big E Langston. Not only because there was a lot of great chemistry, it reminded me of the SmackDown 6 that when Paul Heyman was booking SmackDown. There was a lot of great action. Everything was fluid. The, the wrestling was tight. Roman Reigns definitely looked very, very good in that match once again, but... This leads to something that uh, my colleague Andrew Zarian from Mat Men uh, and head of GFQ said, that Roman Reigns is being protected. And in a way, you kind of can see that in certain matches because there's, there's, a, there's a level of interaction with certain guys that have been established that, that they, seem, they seem a little bit more slowed down. If you think about it, Roman Reigns usually comes in there very impactful, very fast, very fluid, but when he's dealing with a guy like Ray or Kofi Kingston, he kind of he kind of turns it down a notch, which isn't a bad thing. I'd rather the match, the pacing of the match slow down and we don't get any botches or things that may injure any of these guys versus running at 100 miles an hour and and you know just mucking shit up that we don't want that. On the contrary, the match itself very good. Roman Reigns got opened up. He was bleeding quite a bit and it was funny because we know WWE stance on not trying to get blood on television and when the match ended Roman Reigns had a ton of blood on the side of his face uh camera panned out into the crowd real quick came back and Roman Reigns face was was fairly clean which you know again uh smart smart work by the WWE camera team and of course the dissension in the shield was teased but it was the Wyatt's promo that worked because if it's one thing that the absence of CM Punk has allowed is for guys like, you know, Bray Wyatt, Harper, Rowan to get some promo time in, which was good. Um, it was also good because each guy got to speak and it added to the overall uh, promo, which to me was just completely and utterly flawless. These guys, the trio of the shield are 
guys of few words, excluding, of course, Dean Ambrose, who's the mouthpiece. But these are guys of few words and more action versus the Wyatts that they have a, a great combination of not only promo work, but just presence as well. I think that the this six-man tag match is going to steal the show from the Elimination Chamber because these guys, they are the future. Make no mistakes about it. You're looking at uh, Harper and Rowan, these guys, big guys, fluid guys, athletic guys. They move very, very well. They work well as a tag team. The Shield, uh, together, incredibly cohesive, uh, function tremendously well. And when they do separate them, each one of those guys is going to be a force to be reckoned with, especially in the single side of things when that goes down. We had a uh, Bad News Barrett segment, which was, without a doubt, complete shit. I'm actually very grateful that Jerry Lawler interrupted it because it was just extremely, extremely bad. We got our typical WWE app shill, which, of course, is for the network. Uh, but Christian and Jack Swagger was the next match on, uh, on you know, a decent night of matches. And I have to say, Christian, he looked he looked great. He looks very fluid. We know where the Jack Swagger losses are going to lead, which is the breakup of the Real Americans, which if if it's all for Antonio Cesaro going up to the main card, sorry, Jack, but Cesaro, Cesaro has a tremendous upside. Simple as that. Uh, Christian looked good in the match. I think that Christian, you know, it's funny because a couple of guys on Twitter said it too. It's like Christian's definitely looking older. And if if Christian if Christian is is still wrestling in another three years, I'd be shocked. And frankly, when 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 it's Christian's time to hang it up, he's got to go in the Hall of Fame. And, you know, Edge and Christian together. That way, Edge could be a dual Hall of Famer, and Christian could be in the Hall of Fame because those guys they were they were without a doubt uh, a huge part of the Attitude Era, especially the TLC era with all the great matches with the Dudleys and the Hardys. You can't you can't leave Edge out. You can't leave Edge and Christian out. And and Christian has definitely earned it. The Steel Cage match, I was a little bummed out that you were gonna take such a big match like the Steel Cage and just throw it into the middle of your card when when it was pretty a match that screamed main event. Either way, the match was surprisingly well done, with the exception uh with the exception of Cody Rhodes' moonsault, which was very beautiful to watch. Cody Rhodes, he's mastered that moonsault. It's very fluid. It looks good. But Road Dog barely catching him, not the move. Definitely not the move there. Um, I'm Like anything else, it's it's all about timing and, and, and placement. But I will say Road Dog's placement sucked. Cody Rhodes looked really good in there. Um New Age Outlaws, they can hang. They can still get it, get the job done. You're not going to get something pretty, but you're going to get something that works. And considering the the rough and tumble offense that was on display in these matches, I have to say that it, it works. And keeping the belts on the Outlaws, it adds val, uh, you know, it validates any team that beats them because they're beating guys that are bona fide legends. So definitely not a bad move. I was concerned that Cody really hurt himself in that. With that moonsault, but from what I'm from what I've seen and from what I've read online, it looks like it was just a, a great sell on his part, and no real injuries were sustained. Uh, we got a commercial for Betty White hosting Raw next week. Oh, we're back to the Raw hosts. I mean, 
you know, I understand May Young passed away, but bringing Betty White on to kind of fill the void is not going to make matters any better. Just saying. We got ourselves a Zack Ryder sighting, which you knew where it was going. As soon as I saw that he was facing Titus O'Neil, I'm like, this is a match to put Titus O'Neil over, blah, blah, blah. And that's exactly where it went. Now, I didn't really touch too much on the breakup of the primetime players, and I kind of want to get into it a little bit. Um, I think they broke them up too soon. I think these guys had... They, they had a decent run in them to not only be champions, but just be more marketable. Titus O'Neil is a marketable guy. Darren Young, the you know, the WWE, they don't want to admit it, but they're riding the wave of free press that they're getting with Darren Young being the first openly gay WWE superstar. Let's not kid ourselves. You know that's the case. And for you guys to break him up, break them up, you're going to see that there's going to be exposure because it's together that those guys work well. Titus O'Neil single Jay Jay says that, you know, Titus is going to flop as a singles competitor. I don't think he's going to flop. I just think that considering what they've been doing with African American performers thus far, I feel that the same fate awaits Titus O'Neil. Yeah. He's, he's pretty decent on the mic. He's incredibly athletic. He has the main event physique, but He's not he's not going to be a guy that they're going to they're going to have on television every week unless they're going to change direction and start really b- bringing up their 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 African American wrestlers. Let's not kid ourselves. Kofi Kingston, B- Biggie Langston is probably the only guy right now that is scratching the ceiling so to speak to get into the main event. And the question isn't when, you know, if he gets into the main event, it's when. And in, in, in Biggie Langston's case, he, he definitely has the tools and the look to be a guy, to be that guy. But Titus O'Neil, he's, he's there, but I just feel that they're going to rush his push to try and make him a main event level heel, and it's just not going to work. Not only that, but you've just broken up way too many guys. You broke up tons of funk. You broke up uh, the primetime players. You're going to break up the uh, the real Americans. You're definitely going to break up the Rhodes brothers. It's going to happen. So you go through all this trouble to prepare this this brand new tag team division. And little by little, you've you've pretty much disassembled all the vital components that made that division successful. I mean, if there's going to be a huge call up of tag teams, that's great. But right now, it's becoming the Usos, the Shield, and the Wyatts, and the New Age Outlaws every week. And it's unfortunate, because those guys, the primetime players, the real Americans, there's 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 something there. There's definitely uh, something for each one of those teams to contribute to the overall product. It's it, J- Jay says that they build the tag team division up and then tear it down like this in the blink of an eye. And that's that's pretty much what's happening. We get a dance off, which is AKA let's get a, let's find a way to get Emma back on TV. And of course they get her back in with Santino and um, starting a little feud with Fandango and Summer Rae, which has been a feud that's been done in NXT. So if you are someone well-versed in NXT, you'll recognize where this is going. Um, it's great. You call up another diva, not a problem. It is what it is, but we're going to, we're going to have dance offs every week. I understand you want to get Emma over, 
with her emitaining and emitainment and whatever and her little fucking dance shit. But let's let's be realistic when we look at the fact that you're you're taking a guy like Fandango who was red hot and once again you just you just you just clubbed him at the knees and and and, and chop blocked him and he's pretty much back to doing this the dance off. Just saying. The great white Sheamus took on Curtis Axel in a match that was pretty much the equivalent of a traffic accident that you just want to slow down and watch. Pretty much because Sheamus' rough and tumble style and Curtis Axel's more complete wrestling style just didn't mesh well. And of course, this is going to lead to Sheamus taking on Ryback next week. Because that's how it goes. He takes on Curtis Axel this week, then Ryback next week. That's how it is. I felt the match was very disjointed. There was no no chemistry there. Just Curtis Axel bumping like a madman to make Sheamus look good. Meh. We get our Batista segment. Alberto Del Rio comes out. It was It was another disaster. And the reason I say this is because you want Batista to be over. You want it so bad. But it... It's not it's not working. And the problem is that people Batista, when you look at him, you see a heel. I'm sorry, people just and I've talked about this. You can't connect with him. Here's this big tattooed, tight pants wearing, sunglass having, you know, movie star. And and you want people to relate. You want people to connect. It, you know, it's not like when he first turned face and he was Mr. Intensity with the thumbs down. It's it's came and it's it's come and gone. People just that's not what they want. They want to root for guys, you know. They definitely want to root for guys. Like the 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 name of the game is Daniel Bryan. Until WWE does right by Daniel Bryan, any other face that they try to shove down the fans' throats are gonna be met with disappointment. They're just people are just gonna be like, nope, not gonna do it. Nope, not gonna do it. Whether it's Batista or you know, a face Antonio Cesaro, whatever the case is, it's not going to work. Not. And that's, that's where the big, that's where the big question mark is. It's like you bring Batista back, you thrust him into the main event. And in all, for all intents and purposes, you, you pretty much have, have set up the crowd's hatred of a guy who, if he would have been brought back the right way, he he could have been the guy that you wanna you wanna have out there to cheer that can carry the company for for a couple of months, but that's not the case. You, you he comes back, he he pretty much jumps in front of Daniel Bryan, which pissed off all the fans, and now you can't you can't undo that with just him beating up Alberto Del Rio every week because people don't care about Alberto Del Rio either, and therein lies the problem. You can't have Batista feud with a guy that nobody gives a shit about. And here we are with Batista feuding with a guy that nobody gives a shit about. See, if you would have started kind of leaning to Batista and Brock Lesnar, now we're getting somewhere. Now we're getting into the freak show aspect, but we're getting somewhere. Not only that, but both guys with their with their background in MMA can can have an MMA-style wrestling match that would look semi-believable just saying unfortunately we are not in that situation where we're going to have intelligent booking and unfortunately the intelligent booking is going to hurt guys like Batista 
in the long run. Simple as that. It wouldn't be a, a, a Raw if the Shield got a match and the Wyatts didn't get a match, which they did, which, of course, led to the Wyatts pretty much decimating Dolph Ziggler, Xavier Woods, and R-Truth. Dolph Ziggler bumped like a madman in this match, looked very good. Xavier Woods, I, I'm a little upset. I mean, besides him being a friend of the show, it's like you call this guy up and you've done nothing. You know what he's doing? Treading water. That is what Xavier Woods is doing. He's treading water. Him, Dolph Ziggler, and R Truth. They should just their faction should just be the water treaders. Because that's it. They're just floating along, floating along, trying to stay afloat, not really feuding with anybody, not really making an impact. They're just there. They're just bodies taking up space. And that's bad. Because you in Dolph Ziggler's case, you have a guy, um, super athletic, bumps like a champion. The crowd digs him. They dig his gimmick. But creative has nothing for you. That's really it. And that's the problem. You know, it's... it's um. The problem in, in Dolph Ziggler's case is he's not... I, I You know, I think management just stopped believing in him as a main eventer. And that, and that you know, that that's that's part of the problem. These guys... And we've talked about this, especially those of you that are that know wrestling, that wrestling isn't just about putting in the work. It's about who you know, which agent is in your pocket, which management guy is in your pocket, um, whose friend you're with, you're, who, you know, which main event guy you're a friend of. And, and that's a huge factor. I mean, Jay says in the chat, bring back the split roster. And here's the problem. I was on board with the roster split. I really was because it gave us the opportunity to to showcase a lot of great talent. But the problem with the roster split was that WWE had a finite amount of ideas. When they reached the end of those ideas, they were they were done. They were done. That's what happened. It's like here's the roster. We're going to do drafts. We're going to do roster versus roster. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And then when they reach the end of the rope, let's just start unifying belts to make them seem important. And and that's it. Like the U.S. title and the IC title, before, before the year is out, those belts will be unified. Why? Because there's, there's, no, there's no brand split that, that, that warrants two secondary titles. Now, like I've said on numerous shows, if you bring back a TV title, that will allow you to have a belt that you can defend on three shows, and if somebody wins the belt on main event or SmackDown, it, it looks okay, and it gives the, the, the third-tier guys a title to aspire to. The way I've always felt it is, you have your world champion, your, your world heavyweight championship for your main eventers. Your IC belt is for your second tier guys that are on the cusp. Then you got to have something for the third tier, the third tier guys to aspire to. And what I'm saying is like, let, let's say we had a TV champion. I would, I would probably say Dolph Ziggler would be a good TV champion. Why? You have him on TV every week. You give him a belt and then he can go from being a TV champion move him back up into like the IC title picture. And then you can put that TV title on, on a guy like Xavier Woods that you want to get in front of people. 
But like I said, I would make the rule that the TV title needs to be defended on one of the three shows every week. And the beauty of that is that it gives you the opportunity to create new stars, to create new feuds, and it has these guys motivated to challenge for a belt. I'm sorry, but WWE gives us roughly six hours of live television every week. You mean to tell me that you can't have a TV title defended in in six hours of live TV? It boggles my mind if that can't happen. That's all I'm saying. But the Wyatts, of course, got the victory in this match. Big shocker there. Um, The Shield cut one of their promos. Again, the Shield are their promo work as a unit solid separate them and Ambrose just runs with the ball but like I said we're not worried so much about the promos for this feud we are worried about the match itself so solid promo work you know we got we got an, a Rusev promo which I think that guy's gonna be uh, an old school foreign heel that people are gonna really loathe and despise and if his wrestling is on point that will be a, a big factor and of course if if Lana is out there with him, I think he has all the tools to be a solid, solid uh, mid-card heel, foreign heel for the foreseeable future. The ladies took center stage. Naomi with Cameron took on Oksana with Alicia Fox. Naomi got really, really uh, injured in this match. She took a knee drop to the eye. Um, And, uh, you know, it's funny with regards to how that 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 injury happened because when you look at it in slow motion pretty much Oksana's knee dropped right into right into the eye socket so it, you know you could you could break an orbital you could break an orbital bone you can you can break the side of of your face it it, it was a, a very 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 scary situation uh from what i've read they're saying that Naomi does have um some injury to her orbital bone, but it's not broken. Um, an orbital socket injury is an injury that takes a long time and not for nothing. If you're a woman, I'm, I'm sure that you don't want your face kind of sunken in from having your orbital bone broken, but it was definitely a scary, scary botch. Um, Oksana management's very high on her. I don't think she's, she's terrible. I don't think she's great, but you gotta be careful because uh, Oksana's, non 100% wrestling is, is going to really hinder somebody like Naomi, who's definitely leaps and leaps and bounds better. But you know, what can you do? Accidents happen. Hopefully we don't get too many of those. And I have to admit the divas are improving, but again, it's the right divas. Cameron is still garbage. We know this, but the rest of them, something's going on. Somebody's doing the right thing and it's working. Anyway, your non-title match, Randy Orton, Daniel Bryan. Of course, Daniel Bryan gets the pin. Uh, the crowd super into it. And um, Corporate Kane and Orton attack Daniel Bryan. Kane hits the, the choke slam for the pyro. Blah, blah, blah. Wash, rinse, repeat. It's good Daniel Bryan got the victory on Randy Orton. That's a, that's a great thing. It was the feel-good moment for the crowd, and I think they needed that because the crowds are either chanting CM Punk or always chanting Daniel Bryan, and they're really just not even giving any other talent any sort of attention. So giving the crowd the the Daniel Bryan feel-good moment was good, and then kind of taking it away is 
is part of the, the booking process. Now, involving Kane in the feud clearly sets up Kane, you know, Kane and Daniel Bryan, if you want to go that route, and their existing history, but the Daniel Bryan victory as a whole definitely was something that needed to be done. Raw wasn't shit, definitely wasn't garbage, but it wasn't great. It was it kind of just it kind of just went along, you know? And and it's not a bad thing, but it could have been better. I know we have roughly uh, two weeks, let's say, let's say two weeks before the network drops, which is February 24th. And that's right after the elimination chamber pay-per-view. And I think that the raw post elimination chamber is probably going to be one of the raws. That's going to be top, you know, top 10 for the year. Everybody's going to be like, wow, that was an amazing, that was an amazing raw. But again, it's the lead into the network. So we can only expect big things. And I agree. Jay says Daniel Bryan outworked Randy Orton. But th- that's the thing. Daniel Bryan outworks everybody. But in Orton's case, it worked in Orton's favor because he looked like he, like he, you know, he belonged. And that's the thing. Orton, I always talk about, he's very paint by numbers, master of the chin lock. It's like chin lock, chin lock, chin lock, backbreaker, stomp, 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 punch, punch, punch. I'm going to go crazy and pretend I'm a snake, RKO, wash, rinse, and repeat. Daniel Bryan brought a little bit more out of Orton in that match. And that's what, that's why I say that Daniel Bryan is the best guy that they have right now, because he's bringing, he's bringing so much out of the other talent, whether it's um, being more technical or, or working on a faster pace. The fact is that, Oh, hanging DDT. Thank you. Slick. It's true. Um, You know, Randy Orton worked outside of his typical signature spots and it worked. It definitely worked. Now, is Daniel Bryan going to continue that momentum with other performers? That remains to be seen. But that that right there is is the best part of guys like Daniel Bryan, CM Punk, Cesaro. They bring out a new dynamic when it comes to their opponents. And in this case, Randy Orton definitely got the proverbial rub, so to speak. All right, so let's get into the other wrestling news for this week, which were... There's a couple of things that I know a lot of you guys are going to discuss. Um, of course, the Elimination Chamber is taking shape. Randy Orton t- taking on Daniel Bryan, John Cena, Sheamus, Antonio Cesaro, and Christian. I have a nagging suspicion that Christian's going to get attacked, injured, or something shortly before the Chamber, and someone's going to take his place. Now, if you're a, a, a hardcore believer of, of the work and the shoot, then... Christian will get injured and CM Punk will take his place. That is wishful thinking. But I wouldn't be shocked if it went that route. Just I'm I'm just saying it could happen. For those of you wondering where the hell is Sting and why hasn't the WWE signed Sting, uh from what's been reported, it seems that Sting is not officially signed but they're pretty much very 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 close. Now, what they're trying to do is they want to bring Sting in to set up WrestleMania 31 to introduce him to the to the Raw audience. And there's a rumor floating around that they want to make Sting the general manager of Raw. And, you know, it's it's weird because Brad Maddox making Sting general manager of Raw kind of tosses Brad Maddox to the Brad Maddox to the wayside, which is unfortunate because I think Brad Maddox is just a 
a, a, a fucking, he's a great chump, douchebag general manager. But I will say this. If Sting becomes Raw GM and Maddox is his assistant and maybe we get to see Brad Maddox wrestle a little bit, then then maybe, you know, there's an upside there. Jay says, I would faint like a schoolgirl if that happened if Punk take, takes over the Elimination Chamber. You know what the problem is? And Jay, you may agree with this. The CM Punk situation is so is so gray because Punk hasn't put out any tweets. Punk hasn't done any interviews. The WWE is not acknowledging his absence. The WWE is not putting out any press releases. His merchandise is still on sale. Yeah, they took him out of some video packages and shit, but Punk's merchandise is still on sale. It hasn't been discounted. You know, all the typical superstar departure signs aren't all there. Now, I will say this. If Punk, if Vince manages to so- if manages to soften uh, this particular bump in the road, then who knows? We could see CM Punk in the chamber. But right now, it's it's very, very, very gray. WWE is going to be dropping a brand new compilation called The Great Wrestling's Greatest Factions. That's going to be happening uh, May 27th. You're going to get um, a brand new disc set covering not only... Uh, the usual guys, but some old-time favorites like the Four Horsemen, of course, NWO, DX, the Nexus, the Shield. Um, we'll probably also talk about the Wyatts and um, maybe the Heenan family. But either way, it's going to be a three-disc DVD set or a two-disc Blu-ray set, and it's going to cover all of the legendary factions. Oh, got can't leave out Fabulous Freebirds, Nation of Domination, Evolution, Straight Edge Society, The Core, if you even want to talk about them. But I'm sure we're going to see all those factions when that DVD and Blu-ray set comes out May 27th. Now, this next bit of news, take it it with a grain of salt. So, a couple of sites, including WrestleZone, PW Insider, 411, they're reporting that Stephanie McMahon met with former diva, Stacy Keebler about a possible return to the company. Now they're looking to bring her back for WrestleMania 30 and not to work in the ring, but to do like backstage correspondent, kind of like how the rock hosted WrestleMania, but for her to be involved in that capacity, there's also talk of inducting her into the hall of fame. Now I got to ask you guys, if Stacy Keebler was inducted into the hall of fame, would you guys have a problem with that? Because I, I personally think Stacey Keebler did nothing noteworthy to warrant an, an inclusion into the Hall of Fame. She's She was she was good for, for the company and she was a good diva, but is she a Hall of Famer? I don't think so. I, I do not think so. But they, that may be the carrot that they're going to dangle to get her to participate. Because in a couple of interviews she's done, she said, no, I'm kind of done with the wrestling thing. You know, I'm working on other stuff. But you never know. I mean, they're they're trying to pull out all the stops to get a lot of um, old timers to be involved. And, um, you know, Jay says, Stacy in the Hall of Fame, hell no. And Slick says, but that ass. But even even if you want to say that, I, I never found Stacy Keebler to be remotely appealing 
The reason I say that is because when you look at Stacy Keebler, you can pretty much put lump her in the same vein as any other valet who who hasn't really accomplished much other than being a valet. It's not like Trish Stratus who Trish Stratus wrestled and then made that transition. Lita went from valet for SA Rios to working with Team Extreme with the Hardy Boys. So she made that transition. But a lot of, you know, Stacey Keebler didn't do anything other than, you know, mess around with David Flair and WCW and manage the Dudley boys. And that's it. Thank you. Jay, Jay used a good one. She's a Tory Wilson. Yes. In other words, a notable diva, but Hall of Famer, not in a million years. I'm sorry, but no. Speaking of Hall of Famers, got to extend a congratulations to former WWE Tag Team Champion, World Champion, and of course, Rated R Superstar himself, Edge, who is a father for the first time. Now, you're probably asking yourselves, when did this become Regis and Kathy Lee, or Kathy and Michael, or, you know, whatever the case is, it's because the woman he had the baby with is Beth Phoenix. How about that? Edge and Beth Phoenix welcomed the birth of their first child several weeks ago. Word is that they had a baby girl. So there you have it. Edge and Beth Phoenix are parents to a little girl, according to what the, you know, the the sheets are saying. But yeah, Beth Phoenix is a mom. Now, here's here's the crazy part. We've we've all watched wrestling. We all know Beth Phoenix. You know, Beth Phoenix could pretty much break most guys in half. And it's like, Beth Phoenix is a mom. Now, as a wrestling fan, either you feel really old, or you're like, holy shit, where did the time go? There you have it. Edge is a dad, Beth Phoenix is a mom, and they're both retired. Now, I got a question for you. Does Beth Phoenix deserve to be in the Hall of Fame? I'm going to put that out there. If Stacey Keebler doesn't need to be in there, does Beth Phoenix deserve to be in the Hall of Fame? I'm curious. Feel free to chime in in the chat. I'd definitely like to hear your thoughts. Now, speaking of Hall of Fame uh, nominees, uh, there's pretty much a a large consensus saying that we will be seeing Paul Bearer go into the Hall of Fame this year. We'll see. Uh, There's also rumors of a third star caliber of Jake the Snake Roberts and the Ultimate Warrior going in. I'd like it to either be Savage, but Savage kind of deserves his own you know, spot. I'd like to see Rick rude in there. I think Rick rude should go in there. If Jake, the snake is going in there because the feuds that those guys had were legendary. Just saying, I think, I think if Jake, the snake goes in, Rick rude should be the the next guy. That's all I'm saying. Now who would induct him? I, I honestly would like to see triple H and Shawn Michaels induct him because when DX first started, Rick rude was there. Or Jake the Snake should induct Rick Rude. You know? Uh, GFQ Human, what divas do belong in the Hall of Fame? I'd like a couple of names. Uh, One name that's been thrown around that I can kind of get behind and agree on is Lita. Lita definitely could go in the Hall of Fame. I think, especially since her and Trish were the the first divas to main event an episode of Monday Night Raw, I definitely would put... um. You know, I'd put her in there. Uh, 
China, China should go. China should go in the Hall of Fame, regardless of the porno past or whatever the case may be. You got to remember, she was instrumental in Degeneration X. She had a great program with the late Eddie Guerrero. She was an Intercontinental Champion. She had a she had a great, a solid program with Chris Jericho. Sure, she's a head case. Sure, she may or may not have man parts, but the fact is. If you look at her at, at her credentials from a wrestling standpoint, China China does belong. Whether as a member of D Generation X or solo, she does belong in there. That's all I'm saying. So we were talking about Alberto Del Rio and how boring he was when we were talking about Raw. It seems uh, PW Insider is reporting that Alberto Del Rio has not been happy with the direction of his character. Uh, he feels that you know he's been a main event player on SmackDown. He was a world champion, and now he's pretty much being fed to Batista. Now you know Alberto Del Rio is thirty six years old, and he's been contemplating that once his contract is up, he will leave the company. Now, here's the thing: if Alberto Del Rio left the company tomorrow, no one would care. No one would give a shit. That's all I'm saying. Yes, Sable is Brock Lesnar's wife, GFQ Human. She is. Um, if Del Rio left tomorrow, no one would care. It pains me to say it, but he really hasn't done anything of substance to warrant anybody being remotely interested in him. I'm sorry, but that's not the case. If you look at it, you know, it's... it's um. No, Sable Sable wasn't married to Stone Cold. That was Deborah McMichael, slick. Deborah McMichael was married to Steve Mongo McMichael, and then she was married to Stone Cold, and then Stone Cold got caught up in the domestic violence with uh Deborah, which I don't I think he gave her the stunner, maybe, maybe not, but that's that. Anyway, as I was saying, so Del Rio's talking about not being happy, possibly leaving when his contract is over. I close this out by saying don't let the door hit you on the way out. Del Rio's done nothing. Nothing. You were champion. Who cares? You cut a couple of promos in Spanish. Who cares? You every time you come out, it's it's nothing. It's that. That is what that is the response when Del Rio comes out. Nobody cares. Nobody legitimately gives a shit about Del Rio, and it's not because he's a a, a bad heel or a shitty wrestler. It's just the fact that he sucks. His persona sucks. His wrestling is good. His persona, his presentation stinks. I don't know if it's the accent. I don't know if it's just the way the gimmick is done. It stinks. Jay says Alberto Del Rio will fit perfectly in TNA. Okay, let's 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 play a little armchair booking. If Del Rio went to TNA, how would you book him? Curious. Because me personally, I would have Alberto Del Rio come in and be, you, you guys are going to think I'm crazy, I would have him be the second investor with MVP. And you can use that because when Del Rio comes in as that investor, you can start bringing in more Mexican wrestlers, more cruiserweights. So... I would have Del Rio comes in. He's the second investor. He says, hey, you know, um, I've been talking with the board and we got a lot of talent coming in that are going to help us 
bring back the X division to the prominence that it was before um, Dixie Carter took over. And you can really flesh out that storyline, use that, bring in guys like Damian 666, L.A. Park, um, you know, a lot of those guys. You could bring those guys in under the Del Rio kind of regime, and it would really work because you'd have a guy, you'd have MVP kind of, you know, he would he would kind of be the straight man. It would be like Riggs and Murtaugh kind of shit uh, where you can have MVP carry the ball and Del Rio kind of, you know, he's there and, and he adds to it, but you can kind of use that for the, the Latino fans. You can, you can involve uh, Eddie Guerrero's brother who does the commentary for TNA. That would work. And like I said, you bring in more X division guys, uh, more Mexican superstars that would really flesh out that X division and not, excuse me, and not give us the same six matches that we see every week. I think that would be a great way to do it. And Del Rio would work there because he wouldn't be out there all the time. He could wrestle if he wanted to. And it would just, he'd just be, he'd have something going for him that isn't Mexican aristocrat. Cause I'm sorry. When I think Mexico, I think a pregnant lady hanging from a highway sign killed by drug dealers, because that's what I think of or uh, really good Mexican food. But do I think aristocrats? The only aristocrats I think of are the types that are in a punchline involving Mexican food. That's the only time an aristocrats reference works. I'm sorry, but no. That it was just a gimmick that was destined for failure. When you made him Mexican JBL, it was it was it just didn't work. Jay, you're saying he goes boss has some twisted thoughts. If you look up an article in the Daily News, there's a, a drug cartel that pretty much owns a town in Mexico. They killed an entire family, including a pregnant woman, and hung them all from the signs of the town in Mexico. Uh, that's what that's what I'm talking about. When you think of Mexico, you think drug cartels and Mexican food. Eh, sometimes you might think from dust till dawn or machete if you're me. But seriously, that's what comes to mind. It's it's crazy. It's crazy. You know, Mexican aristocrat does doesn't work. If you would have said, hey, he's from Spain or or something, maybe. But Mexican aristocrat. Drug Lord would have worked. Hey, Alberto Del Rio's a drug lord. Fuck it, that's the gimmick. But they didn't do that. They just have him come out there with zero charisma, and he pretty much got over courtesy of Ricardo Rodriguez. Otherwise, no. What, because he started chanting C when he became a face, riding off the, the mo- riding on the momentum of Daniel Bryan's yes chant? That was it. He accomplished nothing else but that. He is a blip on the proverbial wrestling radar. And if he were to leave, like I said, I wouldn't even shed a tear. That's it. Okay. So that ends, uh, this week's wrestling segment. I figured I'd get that Del Rio rant out of the way and it would be a fitting way to, uh, close things out and go into this week's gaming news. So let's get the ball rolling. Shall we? All right, so on the gaming side of things, a lot of first first bit of news, of course, 
has to tie into wrestling a little bit. Take two did confirm that we will be getting a brand new WWE game uh, coming this fiscal year. Uh, the company confirmed during their third quarter earnings call that WWE 2K15 and NBA 2K15 will be released during the company's upcoming fiscal year, which means we may be seeing that game between April 1st, uh, 2014 and March 31st, 2015. Of course, that makes sense because WWE 2K14 came out around October, November, so it will continue being part of the holiday launch window. Now, of course, WWE 2K14 right now is on, you know, PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360. The goal is for 2K15 to be released on current gen Xbox One and PlayStation 4 consoles. Like I said, keep an eye out. Fiscal window, April 1st, 2014 to March 31st, 2015. All signs, though, point to it most likely being its typical uh, November release window. A game I didn't get to talk about for the last couple of weeks that I actually saw a trailer for earlier this morning was the Rambo video game. Yes, there is a Rambo video game, folks, and it's actually going to be released in Europe February 21st, and in the U.S., you're going to be seeing it sometime for this quarter. Um, It's going to be released on 360, PS3, PC, and you're going to get DLC expansion packs as well. Uh, The trailer looks pretty solid. I don't think it's a game that you'd want to spend $60 on, but... um, I do think that there is um, an upside for this game because it's a game that you could probably pick up, um, you know, for 500 or 600 points. Well, for five or six dollars on Xbox Live Arcade and plow through it and it wouldn't be a bad it wouldn't be a bad investment. That's all I'm saying. Uh, It's been brought to my attention that Slick is calling in or is on the line. So let me bring him in. Slick, what's up, buddy? What's up, man? You tell me, bro. What's going on? Um, I've just been looking at a lot of different gaming news this this week and looking at a lot of different debates and arguments and stuff. So I'm, I'm wondering to myself, I mean, it's very early in the year. We haven't seen any of like the, the gaming conferences. I'm really interested in seeing what E3 has to offer, but I wanted to ask you, the way things look so far, do you think that possibly the next gen came too early? I don't think the next gen came too early. What I think was that there was not enough preparation from a launch standpoint. And what I say is that they came out of the gate swinging. Everybody came out of the gate swinging, but the launch window the make or break was very, very mediocre. That's not to say that it wasn't great because like I've said before, each, you know, each, each system had roughly 20 games out, whether they were rehashes or not, there were 20 titles. There was a title for everybody. But the fact is out of those 20 titles, how many were legitimately engaging? How many of them were legitimately next gen? And that's where therein lies the problem. Think about this. You buy your PlayStation 4. What are you going to play? Knack? Assassin's Creed Black Flag? NBA 2K14? You see what I'm saying? Like, most of it is stuff that's there already. There's no... But that's what I mean. Aside from the stuff that 
Sony or Microsoft put out themselves, their, their first-party stuff, all the other stuff are really PS3 or Xbox 360 titles with an extra coat of paint. Right. But that doesn't that doesn't affect next gen being too soon. And the reason I say that is because the technology and the hardware have evolved enough that it warranted the new systems. Where I felt that the problem lied was the fact that they they didn't use backwards compatibility, which would have led, in my opinion, to more market share. Because you would have picked up these consoles, you would have had your old games, and it, and people would have been buying them immediately. You get what I'm saying? The backwards compatibility, everybody says, oh, yeah, that doesn't matter, that doesn't matter. It does matter because nobody wants to have six systems. Nobody. Unless you're a collector or you're legitimately playing them all, I'd give anything to be able to just take a 360 game, pop it into an Xbox One, and be done. That's why I love my PS3 because I can still play my PS2 and PS1 games. Don't get me wrong, I still have a modded PS2 but it's a modded PS2. Right. But I actually saw something in regards to what you said. It was the most idiotic thing I saw, but I I did see a video on YouTube of someone, quote-unquote, playing Grand Theft Auto V on their Xbox One. Well, here's here's the thing. Here's the thing. Well, here's the, here's the way the th- they did it. Go ahead. They plugged their 360 into the Xbox One. I'm like, yeah, of course. That's a complete idiotic waste of time. Here's here's the thing, dude. It, it things like this are gonna be. We're always gonna sit here and talk about the woulda, coulda, shouldas, what what we should have done, what we should not have done. The fact is, we the next gen, we were ready for it. The problem was next gen wasn't ready for us. In other words, we were ready for new technology. We're ready for, you know, systems that control our cable boxes and we can talk to it. We were ready for that because we're at that stage. We're at that level. But they weren't ready for us because they said, oh, well, we're just going to put out these four titles for that system. And then we're going to release these other titles without really giving the developers time to master the art of creating you know, flagship titles. Think about it. Think about how far, how long it took PlayStation 3 to put out a game the caliber of Uncharted. You know? It took time. It wasn't a one, two, three affair. And that's where I said that they they dropped the ball by not including some type of backwards compatibility. Because in that respect, you'd clear out all the old stuff You'd have your stuff and your stuff would live on. Even if it was that you would start, you would start phasing out those titles within a year. In other words, if you had Assassin's Creed four on the 360 and you were playing it on the Xbox one, you know that you can play that version of the game for the next six months. Afterwards, there's not going to be any DLC or anything like that. You're either going to stop playing it or you're going to trade it in and get the, you know, the next gen version. Or whatever the case is. But by doing that, you're you're kind of you're protecting yourself. And that's where these guys they dropped the ball. They didn't protect themselves. And people are like, all right, I played Rise, I played Knack, I played Killer Instinct, you know, I played NBA 2K, I played Black Flag. Now what? 
even Tomb Raider the Complete Edition, which people have spoken so highly about, it's still a pretty game that we've already played. Right, it's like I said, I, I, I considered buying it, and then I looked at the reviews, which, like I said last week, they basically said, if you played it on PS3, keep playing it on PS3. Right, that's what I'm saying. And, and, and you know, you, doing that, it's true. Like, if you if you considered it, and, I and you know, I know you. You know, we've been friends for a long time. And you're like, nah. Not even from a collector's standpoint. That's just because you have no fulfillment. You know what I mean? You're like, you're like all right, I'm going to pick it up. Oh, it looks pretty. And, you know, what else? Anyone? I'm pick it up for Black Friday when it's, like, 20 bucks. Right, that's what I'm saying. Like, like, like that. But, but you're not running out there to drop sixty dollars. And like, what's gonna happen is next month is the true trial by fire. Like, honestly, I look at next month as the real launch window for these titles because you got Titanfall dropping on the 360 and the Xbox One. You got you know brand new titles coming out for PS4. You got Nintendo teasing a couple of things. And look at what's happening. It's all in March. Nothing happening in February. Nothing. Crickets. But then March. Oh, here you go. That's why I held out. And more than likely, I'll end up picking up one or both systems throughout March and April. Because they'll actually be shit I want to play. Well, I'm just waiting for March 21st because I'm just anticipating you from this. Right, but you see, you're anticipating. You, you see what you're doing. You, you, you're, you're, ex, you're answering exactly that. Nothing mattered from when the system came out to now. It's in March when the fun starts. Infamous for you, Titanfall for Xbox One fans. You see what I'm saying? Like, there's that big title that people to know if is Titanfall will work cross-console to, you know, just a big multiplayer game. Well, from what they're saying, the con- the Titanfall 360 version is going to come out, get this, a week after the Xbox One version. So clearly you know where they're trying to go with that. Well, of course they want you to get over the Xbox One. Exactly. And that's, and it's true. The re- the real The real game begins next month. This is why everybody's like, yeah, I'm going to go and drop, you know, $1,000 and buy both systems. Good luck. Good luck with that. Good luck with them, with you playing either the same recycled titles or titles that are not worth $60, like Rise. Rise looked good, but Rise isn't a $60 title. Rise is a $40 title disguised with next-gen graphics. That's what it is. Not to, no disrespect to the publisher, no disrespect to people that love that game, but let's be realistic. Not a $60 game. What, because it's pretty? You know? It, it's, 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 like, it's like hookers. You know, you got your $2,000 a night hooker, and you got your $150 a night cab ride in a dark seedy alley hooker. At the end of the day, they're both going to do the same thing. And who knows, maybe the one in the back alley is going to do it better than the one that, that that's a couple of grand a night. It's the same thing with the games. 
same rules apply. Just because it says next gen doesn't mean it's that good. People people look at next gen as as this as this big this big cloud like the Wizard of Oz and shit. It's not the case. Cuz what happens is when you pull that curtain back, that next gen game that you think is oh so beautiful, you're only enamored at the visuals. The game is still mediocre. That's what gets me. Like these guys, yeah, man, this game is life-changing. Really, really, what's so life-changing about it? Look, look at the textures. Do you know what textures are? Like that, like that kills me. You have, you have, you know, $60 rise and $30, $49.99 new Super Mario Brothers. Both games are good in their own right, but which game is the game you're going to enjoy more? Right? Basically. What are you going to enjoy more, Mario or Rise? I can't say anything good or bad about Rise, so I've never played it. No, 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 but I'm just citing it as... Mario game. Go ahead. No, I'm just citing it as an example. Well, look look at it this way. One one game you spoke highly of was Lego City Undercover. Great game. Went under the radar. Still a great game. Is it is it is it is it is it setting the world on fire graphically? No. Is it enjoyable? Yes. Well, I think one better than that. I mean, that one of the 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 least. How, how do I put it? I guess the, the least graphically intensive games ever for the last few generations, and people still love it, than Katamari Damacy. Yep. Katamari Damacy is a great one. The game uses freaking N64 polygons, and people love it to death. There you go. But that's what I'm saying. Well, you know, it's, it's funny we're talking about that, and... and and here's a, I'm going to use that as a segue for this bit of news. Wall Street Journal put out a report that, and, and tell me that you're not shocked in the least, Star Wars and Marvel characters are both set to appear in Disney Infinity. Not shocked, right? They want to do just like Skylab is. They want to they wanna get that. They want to get that. Oh, I mean, how does anybody know off the top of their heads that a chat or anything how the the pricing goes for Scout of the um, Infinity characters? Actually, I do. Are they all priced the same, or nope? Are some of them priced higher than others. Nope. I actually um, I bought Disney Infinity for for Josh's daughter as a birthday gift, and um, the game came with four characters. And it was on sale at the time. It was about eighty bucks. Each character individual has a price from nine ninety nine to fourteen ninety nine. So, and the two packs are usually about twenty five dollars. So, like the Frozen two pack was twenty five dollars, but Wreck It Ralph by himself was fifteen, but Vanellope Von Schweetz was ten. You see? Yeah, but I guarantee you, like if they release like a Vader. That's going to be like 20. Yep, and that's exactly what it is because the Cars pack, which wasn't as popular, 
was like I see it between fourteen ninety nine and twenty bucks. Meanwhile, they tried they put out a pack for uh, the Lone Ranger with Tonto and the Lone Ranger, and you know people didn't give two shits about the movie. So why would you spend twenty dollars for the for the toys to use them in Disney Infinity? Seriously, like right now you have Pirates of the Caribbean, The Incredibles, Monsters University, Cars, Toy Story, The Lone Ranger, Nightmare Before Christmas, and the system is available on Wii, Wii U, 360, PS3, Nintendo DS, PS Vita, and the PC. Sold 3 million copies worldwide since it dropped. Think about all the the properties you just have, and now you're going to add the ones that are going to succeed in getting the one audience that hasn't been chomping at the bit to play this game, and you know who that is? Little boys. I know more girls that play Disney Infinity than boys. Because it's, you know, it's Frozen. It's Jesse from from Toy Story. It's the, the, the female car from Cars. It's Sally from Nightmare Before Christmas. It's Vanellope Von Schweetz, you know? Now kids are going to be like, oh, I can play as Wolverine. Oh, I can play as Spidey. Oh, Darth Vader, Yoda, Anakin. Whatever the case is. I mean, I haven't seen any kids, like, running around playing Infinity characters in store, so I can't really speak on that too tough, but I didn't realize that it wasn't selling well for, you know, to the little boys. Well, the reasoning is that my, my, my boss, he has two sons. He goes, I bought the game for my sons. They played it, and they couldn't get into it because most of the characters that they were selling in stores were girls. You know? I mean, there it came with, with, with male characters, but it felt, it felt I guess, to th- they're also a little older. I guess to them it just felt more girlish, which is weird. But, you know, I think... I think um, Personally, the Marvel license and the Star Wars license integrating it into this game is going to yield them better results. Because if you say, say Marvel puts out the new Avengers, hey, get the brand new Disney Infinity Avengers pack with, you know, Vision, Iron Man, and Ultron, you know? Well, I guess we're going to see. I mean, if they're going to put Marvel characters in, in Infinity then it's definitely going to be tie-ins to movies. And, Absolutely. And, um, and cartoons. <laughs> and they're cartoons. Gonna, they're going to kill it. Yep. I mean, swimming in money, dude. So, like I said, the game came out in 2013, and they've sold over 3 million copies worldwide. Definitely killing it. But check this out. I just want to go through the other news, and I want to go through... Uh, something else with you. Uh, 2K and Irrational Games have announced that Episode 2 of Bioshock Infinite's Burial at Sea uh, DLC pack will be available March 25th for the PlayStation 3, Xbox 360, and PC. Of course, this story now finishes the Bioshock Infinite series uh, as seen through the eyes of Elizabeth. Features new stealth gameplay, weapons, and modes. So if you are a hardcore Bioshock fan, make sure to note March 25th to pick up that next round of DLC. Activision, meanwhile, has announced their brand new Call of Duty Onslaught pack for PlayStation 4, PlayStation 3, and Windows PC, which will be available later this month on February 27th. That new Onslaught pack will feature new multiplayer packs, 
uh, Maverick Dual Purpose Assault Rifle Sniper Rifle, and the first installment in Extinction uh, in Extinction's four-part narrative DLC, Episode One: Nightfall. Now, I wanted I wanted to share this story with you because I'm sure you're gonna agree with this. Um, Ubisoft is gonna put out a standalone downloadable version of Assassin's Creed Freedom Cry. Now, this has happened before with Assassin's Creed Liberation, where they end up releasing these DLC titles as standalone titles to that won't require the game. This particular one, Assassin's Creed Freedom Cry, which is from Assassin's Creed 4 Black Flag, you'll be playing as Adewale's character, which was the first mate of, um, you know, Edward Kenway in Assassin's Creed 4. Now... The thing that gets me is you're going to pick up the standalone downloadable game for the PS4 or PS3 or Windows PC, and um, it's going to run you $14.99. And if you want to pick it up, it's going to come out February 18th. Now, tell me this. Do you feel that it's almost beneficial to not even buy a season pass because you may not want everything and you can just buy the standalone games and enjoy them that way? Or do you think that it's better to release these games like this because it allows people to get into them with minimal spent with with minimal spending. Cuz think about it, you're paying 14.99 for a game that that pretty much takes place in Assassin's Creed's in Assassin's Creed, ugh, excuse me, Assassin's Creed 4's universe. What do you think? Well, <clears throat> you know how I feel first of all about the DLC and you know the the double the double and triple dipping so there's that, but I mean, as long as the people enjoy it, fuck it. I mean, Bioshock Infinite, for example, was one of the biggest games of last year, and right. people I'm sure are looking forward to the the wrapping up of the story. Right. I've heard mixed things on Black Flag just because you know the whole Assassin's Creed story. It seems like Every new chapter, they don't do as well with the story as they did previously, but... Yeah, I mean... I mean, I, people still enjoy the game. While I'm playing Black Flag now, it's a very, very visually impressive game, but I do feel that the story definitely is not as as well-layered as, say, Assassin's Creed 2. Assassin's Creed 2 probably had the best narrative of the, of the series. Assassin's Creed 3 I really enjoyed because I liked... You know, uh, the Native American protagonist, I liked it taking place here in America. It was very well done, but when you finished that game, you just felt very unfulfilled. And so far with Black Flag, there's a lot of great side missions and a lot of great stuff that you can do, but the main story thus far is not... It just... It doesn't feel meaty. You get what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't feel like, wow, I can't wait to jump into this game for the story. Like... When I played Assassin's Creed 2, I went back, I started with 2, I hadn't played 1, because I didn't like 1 at the time, I played 2, Brotherhood, 3, then I went back and played 1, just because the story was so good, and I wanted to know, you know, where it all began. Now you're kind of, like, there's good in 1, but gameplay is tedious right exactly the gameplay well at the time that i played one my 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 tolerance and my my uh my focus just wasn't there like i played one i'm like i can't fucking play this then i i played two and two i was sold and that was it 
And now it's true. It's like it's like now you get into these newer ones and they, there's so much that they, they bombard you with, you know, they bombard you with, oh, you could look, I'm on a boat. <laughs> look, I'm a pirate. You know, or look, I use two swords. Oh, I use two swords and a gun while I fight. Like there's so much extra stuff that they try and and throw in front of you that you lose the story. And that's what's been kind of upsetting me as of late with the Assassin's Creed series. Uh, to answer the question of GFQ 9410, my favorite Assassin's Creed definitely was 2. Yeah, I remember how much you talked about it. Yeah, 2 was, holy shit, dude. Like, I, like 2 ended, I was just like, <gasps> oh my god. And then I had to, you know, I went and I got, I picked up Brotherhood and that was it. I think that that, that universe, the oh. Assassin's Go ahead. No, very good. No, what I was going to say is I think the Assassin's Creed universe, there's so much you can do. There's so many aspects that you can do. Like, I haven't understood why they haven't done, like, Assassin's Creed in Feudal Japan with ninjas and samurais. Because people would love that. There's so much stuff that you can do. The what? That would be Assassin's Creed 5. That will be Assassin's Creed 5 or Assassin's Creed 12. And then it's funny because they're like, yeah, well, we're not going to bring it into the modern time. Why not? Why can't you bring Assassin's Creed into the modern time where the Templars are part of the U.S. government? And, and you know, you have to kind of fight your way through it. It'll be like a long episode of 24, just you playing Assassin's Creed in the real world. I think I think they really but need to... they have to some way tie that into the original story? Well, you know what the problem is? The original story, in essence, ended when they when they when when three was finished. The story of Desmond Miles, who's the character you're using, ended in three. And that kind of the ending in three was so I don't know, it was like like when three ended, you just watched it and you're like, that's it? That's how you ended the game? And then when you start four, you're like, oh, three ended like this. How are they going to do four? And then when you're playing four, you're like, kind of phoned in. The real world component, the gameplay is still engaging and fun. Except when you have the pirates singing for nonstop for 20 minutes. I didn't figure out for I didn't figure out for two weeks how to make them shut the hell up. You know, it's 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 three o'clock in the morning. My wife is asleep, and it's like, yo, ho, roll the men down, and it's just like, what? How do I shut this off? <laughs> a lot of that, dude. There was a lot of that. I finally figured it out one night, just playing around. I was like, oh, good. And he's like, all right, lads, quiet, quiet. I'm like, thank God, shut up. I will say this for those of you on the th- that have Assassin's Creed Four on the 360. If you didn't notice, if you've played 1, 2, and 3, the bonus for for playing those games with 4 is that you can make Edward Kenway wear the costumes from the other games. So, like right now, I got Edward Kenway running around dressed like like Connor Kenway from Assassin's Creed 3. Some of you guys may not care, but I figured I'd let you know. And I'm sure... It's cool when they tie tie games together like that. Right. And, like, give you extra... Even stupid little bonuses to having played a previous game. Absolutely. Like Dead Rising uh, Riptide, because it was a continuation of the first Dead Rising, 
It's like you were able to keep your level from your character if you imported it into the game. You know, stuff like that is, is good. But did you get to keep all the canned food? You to stay with a series. <laughs> did you get to keep all the canned food, though? Because it's all you have there. Well, the canned food I, I traded in for, for other stuff, so... You know, she she was very happy about the canned food. <laughs> canned food is all we have here. Fucking terrible. So, those of you that love Call of Duty, guess what? You will not be having you will not be having a Call of Duty every year like you've had for the last couple of years. Activision is shifting Call of Duty development to a three year cycle. This year belongs to Sledgehammer Games. Activision announced the shift during its fourth quarter 2013 financial call, saying that the extended cycle would allow developers to focus on development and downloadable content creation, a.k.a. we can extend the shelf life of this game by bombarding you with map packs that when it's all said and done, you've spent $100 on this game. So there you have it, three-year cycles. Hopefully, a three-year cycle will actually mean a game that shows some kind of, you know, variation from the last one. Yeah, well, look, I can use female soldiers and dogs. You know, like, like that's it. It's like, it's like, all right, female soldiers, dogs, nice work. Now what? Who the hell knows? There you have it. Well... It's- I mean, Battlefield's talking about freaking having dinosaurs. I don't know, dude. The dino, the dino riding is. Uh, I I don't know. I wouldn't mind seeing like dino riding <laughs> in Call of Duty. At least it would be different, you know. Not even say dino riding, just the possibility of having dinosaurs in the game. Right. Weird. Very very weird. I'd like to see dino riding. Like instead of instead of getting into tanks, you jump on a dinosaur, you start shooting people, sniping them, sniping them from the top of a T-Rex while you're running through like a field. It's stupid, but Velociraptor talons would make for a good melee kill. <laughs> Absolutely, Velociraptor talons for the melee kill would be the move. I wouldn't mind that. Definitely not. That'd be pretty damn horrendous. <clears throat> Absolutely. Well, the um, that actually wraps up our gaming news for this week. There's anything else you wanted to add? Yeah, just um, if anybody in the chat knows, I mean, I'm just really curious. After Titanfall, what the hell is in 2014 is good for for the Xbox One? Well, there, there. Don't say Sunset Overdrive because that's a piece of shit. Well, supposedly they said that they're gonna. Uh, which shouldn't come as a shocker for the anniversary. They're going to release an anniversary edition of Halo 2 on Xbox One. <laughs> Your silence says it all. Yes, I'm, I'm quietly averting my eyes elsewhere. There you have it. Like I couldn't care less. Yeah, it's definitely not a good look, dude, but that's the, that's what I've seen. I mean, I got to look at the release window, and I and I'll try and put some stuff up. Um, I, yeah. I just feel like Microsoft definitely has played their hand too fast. I mean, 
Sony has a big game coming out next month, but they still have games like The Order 1886 right. coming out and, and possibly Uncharted. There you go. There you go. Anything Anything else you wanted to add, dude? I'm good for now. All right. Definitely uh, hold tight. I'm sure you're going to want to get in, in the in the entertainment segment when we get to it. All right, man. All right. Peace. Uh, GFQ Human asks, what is the game behind you on the shelf? Ah, uh, yes. For those of you that haven't really looked, it's just a shelf of just little little knickknacks and shit I got. I got a, a Fall of Cybertron Grimlock, because I'm a big-ass kid. Akuma, of course, from Street Fighter. Uh, Soundwave, one of my favorite Decepticons. And some Round 5 MMA guys. I got a Sackboy from Little Big Planet. Small Ryu there. You're going to see different stuff every week. Um, just trying to clean up a, a lot of the stuff I have laying around the room. So I figured I'd throw it on some shelves. Makes for some good uh, background uh, effects when I'm doing the show. Anyway, as I said, we're at the end of our gaming segment. Let's get into uh, let's get into this week's entertainment news. Um, we got a couple of huge news that we got to go through on the casting side of things and Let's not waste any time since we are making very, very good time this week. All right, so this week's entertainment news have the usual uh, Marvel casting news because it's, if it's almost like every every day something new comes out on the Marvel side of things. But we also have the return of uh, what the fuck movie news this week. There are there are some gems that need to be discussed. But let's get the ball rolling with some Marvel news as it seems that they want to go with a solo Gambit movie with none other than Channing Tatum being rumored to be the to be gambit in a solo film now here's my here's my problem gambit was used in x-men origins wolverine he was played by the very non-charismatic taylor kitsch and while his character was okay the character of gambit as a whole does not warrant a solo film i don't feel that his origins are deep enough that you can you can you can tell a story in 90 minutes as for as for the character himself, I definitely think that Gambit should be in the existing X-Men universe, but not from the, you know, not from the standpoint of giving the guy a solo movie. I know uh you know C Tates has been wanting to do it for quite some time and he's and he wants to get into it and he wants to try and be part of the Marvel universe, but I'm sorry, a solo Gambit movie is just not the move. Right now we have X-Men Apocalypse which is going to be coming right after Days of the Future Pass, plus the rumored X-Force movie, which is starting to take shape. I don't think a solo Gambit movie is worth even investing. If you want to take the time and you want to get him involved, throw him in the X-Men series, make him part of that cast, and take it from there. Gambit does not need a solo movie. This is where comic movies are going to start leaving a bad taste in people's mouths because you're going to want to start cranking out movies for characters that don't really deserve them. If you want to get certain characters 
in front of audiences, you're either you should either use television or Netflix. If you watch Marvel's Agents of Shield, you will see that this week they um we got to see Deathlock appear on on Shield. Now, Deathlock's character, he is not the most well-known Marvel character, but he is a character that that if if his story is utilized in the right medium, you actually want to care about him. And in the case of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is finally starting to do the right thing and start using superheroes and supervillains and, and kind of playing in that sandbox. So I definitely have to say that characters like Gambit, uh, you know, Gambit, Ant-Man is a, is a good one, uh, GFQ viewer 438. Ant-Man, while I understand why you want to create the movie, I don't feel that Ant-Man warrants any sort of of a standalone film, much less a standalone film that's going to have a huge budget. I feel that Ant-Man and even Guardians of the Galaxy to a degree, while in the grand scope of the Marvel Universe are, are, are pivotal films, I don't think they're necessary. I don't think you need to spend fourteen fifty in the movie theater to see a movie about a guy that talks to bugs. Avenger or not, I just don't feel it works. Same thing with Gambit. I understand Channing Tatum, you want to do it, you're on board, you're ready to rock and roll, but a Gambit movie, who's going to be your villains? You know, the, the, the Assassin's Guild, what are you going to do? And that's what I'm saying, like, you can't, it, Gambit is not like a Wolverine where Wolverine can carry a movie by himself because he has an endless assortment of rogues, whether you go with Cyber or Sabretooth or, you know, um, the the robotic Wolverine or Silver Samurai. There, There's an endless list of, of characters that you can go with. Gambit, his, rogue, his rogues gallery, I could probably count it on one hand just doesn't work simple as that now in the chat i see uh gfq human is saying it's weird i want an arkham game all about harlequin and have her win i'd also like a harlequin movie you know what's funny a harlequin movie i wouldn't want a solo movie for exactly the reason that i just said but harlequin being involved in the in the in the dc universe i think would really offset a character like the joker in the sense that Let's take Heath Ledger's Joker. A lot of fan casting said that, um, what the hell's her name? The girl that plays Veronica Mars would make a good Harlequin alongside a Heath Ledger Joker. And I think in a way that actually works because you're, you're, you're going into a more realistic, uh, savage dark place. But the problem with Harley on her own is that in order for you to make her character have any substance, she needs the Joker to play off of. And unfortunately, the you know the demise of Heath Ledger and the end of that Batman trilogy pretty much killed any possibility of that. But you do need Harley to play off the Joker. There's a picture floating around on Facebook, which is nice. It's uh, the Joker. He's working on a, on a plan to kill Batman. Harley walks in in a nightgown fully naked like she has a nightgown on and she says uh hey puddin do you want to ride your harley and he slaps her and it's like you know you look at that and that's exactly the kind of dynamic that you would need on screen 
It's that type of that type of chemistry. If you look, you can find it on Facebook, or you can find um, you know, Harley Joker riding Harley, and you find the picture. And it's funny because that pretty much encompasses what Harlequin's involvement should be. It's playing off the Joker's sinister and sadistic side while adding a little bit, a little dose of humor, sprinkling it in in all the right places. But it's it's good because it's exactly that. You have the Joker. He's a complete psychopath. And here you have this chick, you know, this good-looking woman, totally naked, even though she has the, the clown hat and the clown makeup, but she's naked, you know, and she's trying to get your attention. And you're such a lunatic. You're so insane that it doesn't even affect you. You don't even care. And that's the kind of thing, that type of a relationship when you're using like a Heath Ledger style Joker and a Nolan type of storytelling has has so many layers that it would be amazing. It would be amazing if done right. And that's the problem, like with characters like Harley, characters like like Ant-Man, characters like Gambit, hell, even characters like Deadpool, you need the right you need the right framework to make those characters work in a standalone picture or even in an ensemble film. Same thing with Deadpool. Everybody loves Deadpool. They want to see a Deadpool movie. But seriously, how many legitimate rogues does Deadpool have besides like the Taskmaster? There's not many because Deadpool's kind of an anti-hero, freelance, mercenary. If if you if you watch Green Arrow on um on the CW You'll understand what I'm talking about. When I talk to you about Green Arrow and I say, oh, Green Arrow, you're going to be like, yeah, but his bad guys, what bad guys does he have? And what they've done with the CW version of Arrow is that they've utilized enemies that are also Batman's enemies that in turn have become Arrow's enemies. And the beauty of that is that you can take these guys that aren't that great and you can kind of flesh out the story and do do things with them like Bronze Tiger played by our past guest, Michael Jai White. Or um, you can look at Deadshot, who we all know is a Batman villain, but he's also a, a Green Arrow villain. Same thing with Solomon Grundy. These are characters that when you talk about them and I go, hey, I want to see what Solomon Grundy looks like on screen. You're not going to care about it if it's on a big screen movie. But if it's done right and it's sprinkled in with 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 care, it works. Now... This leads into the other bit of casting that has been highly, highly controversial, and that is the casting of Jesse Eisenberg as Lex Luthor and Jeremy Irons as Alfred in the upcoming Superman vs. Batman film. Now, when you look at that movie, the first thing is Jeremy Irons as Alfred is genius-level casting. While I thought Michael Caine was good, I think Jeremy Irons more surly yet serious demeanor. It's like visualize Scar from the Lion King yelling at Batman. Just visualize that. Visualize Scar from the Lion King talking down to Batman. That's the type of thing that you really are going to expect when you have Jeremy Irons on screen with Ben Affleck. And I smell that type of an exchange being one of the high points of that film. Now, Jesse Eisenberg... I want to talk about this because everybody said, oh, Brian Cranston should be Lex Luthor. And it's funny because there's a meme floating around that says we couldn't get Heisenberg, but we got Eisenberg. Now, Latino Review put out a very interesting 
piece of news with regards to how Lex Luthor's character is going to be played. Now, he's going to be bald, which is a no-brainer. But where they're going to go with it is it in such a way that I kind of feel is going to piss people off. Because they want to go with this um, this young, uh, multi-millionaire, similar to you know Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook. But here's what they're saying, according to Latino Review. Take this with a grain of salt because it is a review. Eisenberg's Lex Luthor will be into tattoos, and he will have a sleeve of the Metropolis skyline going down his arm. He will also have a shaved head. According to the backstory, they're saying at age 14, he was initiated into a gang and he took it over within a year. He is a ruthless businessman and tech genius with street smarts, becoming a self a self-made billionaire at the age of 18. He is the CEO of LexCorp. Wayne and Luthor are rumored to meet early in the film. In terms of them addressing the Superman uh, destruction of Metropolis. So this leads to Luthor finding a way to utilize Batman to go against Superman. Now a couple of things. People are going to complain about Lex Luthor having tattoos. People are going to complain about, you know, Jesse Eisenberg. But we have to think of the modern overtones of the of the superman mythology and the reason i say that is it's like the gene hackman comedic lex luthor that worked in the 80s it worked in the 80s um the kevin spacey lex luthor eh, it was a little too hacky for my taste but that's the lex luthor we've grown to see then of course we have the african-american lex luthor from the animated series but when you think of uh, self-made billionaires or guys that run companies. You think of the Mark Zuckerbergs. You think of you know those type of guys, those young guys that that really are dedicated and push themselves, and they view the world differently. This is why going with that type of a storyline works. People are like, yeah, but you know Jesse Eisenberg, blah blah blah. Lex Luthor was never a guy that could fight Superman hand-to-hand. Lex Luthor's greatest weapon is up here. You know? That's that's what people don't understand. Lex Luthor was never the guy that was going to trade blows with Superman unless he puts on the suit. Lex Luthor's greatest weapon is up here. And in 2014, when we think of successful billionaires, I, I, I want you guys to... Here's a homework assignment. Go online and punch... Uh, Top successful people under 25. The guys that you see uh, that are under 25 fall into what they're trying to do with Lex Luthor. You have to understand the, 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 the dynamic of the executive has changed. In the old days, you know, everybody thinks we, we got to be like madmen where everybody's got to have three piece suits and, you know, gin and tonics and smoking cigars I've walked into companies, startup companies and successful companies where the guys are in jeans, a blazer and Converse sneakers. And and if you want Superman and Batman to to connect with modern audiences, you have to look at it from a modern point of view. It's very easy to say, "Oh, Jesse Eisenberg's going to suck." I can't say that. Would I have wanted uh somebody else to play Lex Luthor? Absolutely. Brian Cranston comes to mind. 
Um, Idris Elba comes to mind if you want to do African-American Lex Luthor, like Superman, the animated series. Um, either one of those two guys would have been probably my first two choices. I would have gone uh, John Hamm would have been a good Lex Luthor. Um, Michael Rosenbaum, of course, from Smallville, I would have used him since he was a good Lex Luthor. You can go down a list of endless actors that can really work, but when you're looking at it from, hey, this is taking place now, this is modern, this is this is up to date, you want that. Uh, GFQ Human says uh, uh, Van Wilder. Um, Ryan, you know what the problem is with Ryan Reynolds? Too pretty. He's too pretty. You need a guy that's smart, but isn't physically imposing next to Superman. And that's therein lies the problem. You look at Superman, this is what people forget. Lex Luthor is the opposite of Superman. Superman, broad-shouldered, big, powerful, strong. Lex Luthor, human, regular, but intelligent. You can't have, you know, you can't have a guy that 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 looks that looks physically the same as Superman. Every 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 villain for every hero is an opposite. Like Batman, disciplined, uh super dedicated. Meanwhile, the Joker, not disciplined, a complete lunatic, random, erratic, psychotic. That's what I'm saying. Same thing with with Spider-Man and Venom. Venom is, you know, bigger than Spider-Man, stronger than Spider-Man. You know? It's funny, GFQ viewer says, uh, you saw the shoulders on animated Lex. That's that's totally different, but that's just, you know, the animated the animated style. I will say, if you wanted to go with an animated Lex Luthor, like I said, Idris Elba would probably be my pick just because he's 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 he fits that mold. He's very well spoken and you can use that. The the you know, the the Jesse Eisenberg casting to um, to go with what they were saying, GFQ Viewer 438 says, we're getting trust fund baby Lex Luthor. We are, but we're also getting a Lex Luthor that is modern. And that's what that's kind of where we need to go. That we, We're past the Gene Hackmans. We're past the, um, you know, the Kevin Spaceys. We need a guy who's a smarmy, smart douchebag. The Lex Luthor in this movie is pretty much what would happen if Mark Zuckerberg took over the world or a young Bill Gates. Same rules apply. That's what we're getting. So for now, yeah, you might look at it and say to yourself, ah, this casting is bullshit, but listen, wait, give yourself some time. Let it sink in. Think of the rationale I'm giving you. Maybe read some comics, read, read some, if anything, um, Lex Luthor, man of steel, is a, I believe it's a four-issue miniseries. If they go with that type of a story and that type of an attitude with uh, Jesse Eisenberg's Lex Luthor, I'm telling you, we're going to be on to something big. Simple as that. So, um... Uh, GFQ Human, I see your point. However, I personally wouldn't mind a Lex Luthor who is as buff as Superman. I see what you're saying, but you know it's all about it's all about the opposites. Uh, GFQ viewer, is it true about the rumors of Affleck being ousted? No, Affleck is has not been ousted. Um, they're saying that they are filming. Uh, Jennifer Garner 
Kevin Smith, and Matt Damon have all seen the costume, and they've all said that the costume looks amazing. So I, I feel that the movie comes out, I believe, August 2016. Within the next year, we're gonna get a uh, we're gonna get a glimpse of what this costume is gonna look like. And at the end of the day, costumes don't mean nothing if the person that fills them has no substance. Not to say that Affleck doesn't have substance. I think he does. But let's take into consideration the fact that we haven't even seen a trailer, much less seen them exchanging dialogue. So reserve your criticisms for the time being. So first bit of what the fuck movie news we talked about the Expendables at length when it first came out, Expendables 2, Expendables 3, and we've talked about the fact that there was a rumor that we would be getting a female Expendables. Well, that is actually a rumor that is legitimate, but get this, as of right now, it is titled The Expendables. Expenda, but bells instead of bulls, you know, exp- so you got Expendables, which is going to be a, a female version of The Expendables. They're looking at... Uh, Robert Luketic will be directing it and pretty much the synopsis is the the equivalent of every lame action movie we've seen on Cinemax. This is it. When America's Navy SEALs are wiped out trying to penetrate the island lair of a deadly despot who has captured one of the world's top nuclear scientists, it becomes clear that there is no such thing as the right man for the job and that this is a mission so impossible that only a woman can handle it. The only way in. Some of the world's most deadly, some of the world's deadliest female operatives must pose as high class call girls shipped in by a private plane to satisfy a dictator and instead save the scientist and the day. The film is going to be produced by Sylvester Stallone and Kevin King. As of right now, the, the following women are being rumored. Uh, Cameron Diaz, Mila Jovovich. Uh, there's also talk of, um, Ripley, uh, Sigourney Weaver, a couple of different action heroes being involved. Listen, it's not a movie without Cynthia Rothrock, uh, Mimi Lesios, who's probably too old at this point. Uh, who else can we throw in there? Uh, Michelle Yeoh. Who else we got? Yeah, exactly. It does sound like a porn description. <laughs> it really does. But uh, if you're doing this movie without Cynthia Rothrock, Michelle Yeoh, Mimi Lesios, uh, who else can we throw in there? Um, Kelly LeBrock was probably too old at this point, but they'll seriously, like if you do this movie and there's no Cynthia Rothrock, you've automatically failed. You need that. Come on. You guys were, were eighties and nineties babies. You guys remember China O'Brien and those terrible ass China O'Brien flicks on Cinemax. That's, that's what you need. You need that type of campiness to work. That's what made the Expendables such a good series. The Expendables has been a good series because it's mindless and it doesn't take itself seriously. This movie, this concept, the Expendables, just it just screams joke. Unfortunately, it's not April Fool's Day and it looks like it's going to happen. There you have it. In some small in some small screen news, it looks like Garth Ennis and Stephen Dillon's uh, Vertigo comic Preacher is coming to the small screen. AMC and Sony TV state that there is a pilot in development uh, exe- being uh, put together by Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. Of course, uh, Preacher is a it, it's a book that's a little controversial. Uh, the series has been passed on by 
many times for the big screen and the small screen. HBO passed on the project in 2008, deeming it too dark, too violent, and too controversial. But it looks like AMC is going to take the gamble and try and bring it to life. So be on the lookout for that. If you're a fan of Vertigo's Preacher, it will be coming to AMC. All right. Last bit of entertainment news to wrap things up in some casting news. Uh, Paul Bettany, who you know as the voice of Jarvis in the Iron Man movies, will be playing the Vision in in Avengers Age of Ultron. So, obviously, not a shocker there, but Paul Bettany will be playing Vision in Avengers Age of Ultron. Another actress being rumored is Evangeline Lilly, who will be playing the female lead in Ant-Man. As of right now, rumors are that she will be playing Janet Van Dyne, who later on goes on to become the Wasp. Otherwise, they may go with Evangeline Lilly playing the daughter of Hank Pym and Scott Lang's love interest. Either way, um, Evangeline Lilly's a pretty big name, and to not have her associated with the character of the Wasp is a little surprising, but it's a bit of news that we will definitely be keeping a close eye on. Ant-Man is set to start production in April with a release date of July 17th, 2015 so excuse me let's let's look at this a little closer paul bettany of course well versed in the marvel universe doing the voice of jarvis now comes from behind the microphone to play the vision which um is should be very interesting of course the vision was an android created by ultron who betrays ultron and becomes a hero in the comics he marries the scarlet witch i don't know how that works but Either way, the inclusion of the Vision in this series uh, leads me to believe that they're definitely going to go the full Ultron route with Ultron possibly creating the Vision and the Vision joining the Avengers. Uh, One thing I will tell you guys, Captain America and the Winter Soldier will serve as the lead-in for Avengers Age of Ultron. So I will, I cannot stress enough, make sure you stay after the credits. Do not leave. Don't do it. Otherwise, you're going to be all pissed off that you didn't get to see whatever setup they have for Avengers Age of Ultron. All right. So that bit of news actually wraps up this week's entertainment news and actually wraps up the show for this week. Uh, Things went a little faster than I expected, but that's not necessarily a bad thing since we've been going over three hours uh, pretty much since December. So it's pretty nice to be under three hours this time around. Either way. Uh, Let's take it home. You've just heard My Take Radio episode 214 for Thursday, February 6, 2014. If you have any questions, concerns, or would like to be a guest on a future episode of My Take Radio, or if you would like to write for us on MyTakeRadio.com, you can email me at mtrhost at MyTakeRadio.com. You can also find us on Twitter at MyTakeRadio. Become a fan on Facebook. Follow us on Pinterest, add us to your circles on Google+. And of course, if you want the best MyTake Radio experience, pick up the MTR app available for Android and iOS devices and also for Windows Phone and Windows 8. You can pick up the Android version at the Amazon Android Marketplace. For iOS devices, you will be heading to iTunes. And of course, for Windows, you will be heading to the Windows Store to pick up the MTR app. It's $1.99. Cheaper than a cup of coffee gives you 96K stereo episodes of the show, as well as uh, mobile wallpapers 
access to exclusive content available first to MTR app owners and a ton of other perks as well. Like I said, it's $1.99. You can pick that up for Android in the Amazon marketplace, iOS on iTunes, and for Windows in the Windows mobile marketplace. Otherwise, you can pick up My Take Radio archives via Stitcher, Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Zune Marketplace, TuneIn Radio, Spreaker, Mixler, and of course, you can catch video reruns on the GFQ network. We will also be editing the shows going forward. I've been slacking and be putting them on YouTube as well. The goal is by no later than March to have an MTR Roku app. So if you own a Roku box, you'll be able to watch episodes of My Take Radio that way as well. On behalf of myself, Slick, Andrea, and the rest of the MTR family, I will catch you guys next week. Thank you all for tuning in. I am out of here. I think this week we're going to go out with Streets of Rage 2's Go Back by Gecko Yamori, available at ocremix.org. The letter O, the letter C, remix.org. Dot O-R-G.